Hey, everybody. It is Monday, April 17th, 2023. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu, and I have a surprise co-host for you today. <laughs> Hello. Jill, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am back. Um, I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And just a reminder, Jill, this is the place where we also read the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Welcome back. Long time no see. Long time no listen. <laughs> Mosh, thank you for holding down the fort. It's lonely doing the podcast solo. I got to say that, Jill. It is. On this day, just isn't quite as fun. And I saw that you did um, what you're watching, reading, and eating, which I thought was a bold move to do without me. Well, people complained last Friday, the previous Friday, (laughs) when I didn't do it at all, because I was like, it's lame to do it by myself. And people complained. I was like, fine, I'll do it. But then, like, there's no one to react to any of this stuff. So I'm just, you know, recording it into a microphone. Uh, hoping that people enjoy and that my excitement by myself comes across. Jill, how was the vacation? Well, Mosh, you know the old joke, I need a vacation from my vacation. Um, You know, we have a toddler and a baby, one hotel room. We were in Florida for the week with the crazy rainstorms. You reported on it. Literally, they were one in a thousand year storms. So it's tough dealing with that, especially when you're not home. On the plus side, though, most days I did manage to have a rosé in my hand by about 11 a.m. And I also left New York and it felt like winter and I came back and it's officially summer. Yeah. All the trees have leaves. The flowers are blooming. So uh, not too bad. Jill, I hope you weren't stuck in the uh, 25 inches of rain they got in Fort Lauderdale in a matter of 24 hours. Oh, no, we basically were. We were in that general area. Um, Luckily, I wasn't flying in and out of Fort Lauderdale, but we were traveling with some people who were. uh, Their flights were canceled. It was kind of a mess. But most importantly, you weren't like in a car driving, getting, you know, like lifted out by like emergency personnel stuck. (laughs) No. Okay, good. (laughs) I was in I was in a hotel room uh, on dry land. All right. Well, we have a lot to get to as we begin this week. Okay, Mosh, let's get to the headlines. Charges filed against the person who allegedly leaked classified military documents online. The biggest media trial in decades starts today. Dominion Voting Systems versus Fox News. And some of the biggest conservative names like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity may have their day in court. Finally, some word from Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, currently imprisoned in Russia on espionage charges. What he told his family in his first handwritten letter home. Montana becomes the first state to approve a full ban of TikTok, but will it actually take effect? The Supreme Court maintains the status quo when it comes to an abortion pill, buying the justices a few more days to go over the details in the case. Congress wants the IRS to create a free online tax filing system. And speaking of taxes... How much money you need to make in certain cities to feel like it is six figures? The answer, many six figures if you live in certain American (laughs) cities. Uh, And Mosh has On This Day in History. Jill, I'm going to age all of us, but I have a certain anniversary for a certain Nelly song to tell you guys about today. But Mosh, let's start with the latest on what we know about the leak of classified intelligence documents. The suspect, 21-year-old Jack Teixeira, a member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard, remains in custody ahead of his next court hearing scheduled for Wednesday. Teixeira was arraigned on Friday, charged in a U.S. district court in Massachusetts with two federal offenses for unauthorized retention and transmission of national defense information and unauthorized removal and retention of classified documents or material. 
So he is accused of leaking those classified government documents and then sharing them on the gaming site Discord, where he was the leader of a small group that talked about geopolitical issues and current and historical wars. According to the court documents, last week, the FBI interviewed a member of that group who said that Tishara, under a username, started to post classified information on one of the servers of the platform starting around December of last year. Originally, he was only posting paragraphs of text, but the user says that Tashara got nervous that he'd be caught transcribing the documents at work. So within a few weeks, he started to take those documents to his house where he would photograph them and then post those photos to the Discord chat room. Many of the documents had top secret written on them. Also, according to documents, Discord did provide the FBI with some records of the leaker's account. The home address matched that of Tushara. He also allegedly searched a classified government database for the word leak on April 6th. Yeah, don't do that if you've leaked something. (laughs) (laughs) And that is when reports began emerging of the classified information being posted online. Yeah, not the sharpest uh, work there by Teixeira. Uh, Apparently, according to uh, multiple federal officials, that is one of the reasons they were able to find him so quickly is that he searched leaks when the leaks started coming out. And they're like, what's this guy up to? (laughs) So that is partially how they were able to identify him. Uh, They also found that he was actually registered on Discord under his actual name. Uh, Apparently, it wasn't that challenging once they became aware of the leaks. And that's one of the larger questions, Jill, is it took the government several weeks. This stuff was out there for several weeks before they got alerted to it. In fact, it finally showed up in kind of mainstream media reports. That's when the DOD and U.S. government officials found out that the stuff was floating out there. So one of the questions that many people have been asking is, how did he have access to all of this, this 21-year-old member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard? Well, Teixeira was an IT specialist, and so he had high-level top security clearance that allowed him to access the network as an IT specialist. He actually had the high-level top security clearance known as TSSCI, as in Top Secret Sensitive Compartmented Information. That is one of the highest levels, even above top secret, that you can have. And so he worked, yes, as an Air National Guardsman, but as a cyber transport specialist in a group called the 102nd Intelligence Wing. And so they actually deal with a lot of foreign intel. And in order to be able to repair the computers and deal with the computers, they ended up giving him quite a high security clearance. But apparently just having that clearance doesn't mean you have access to everything. That access is based on, quote, need to know information for your job. To service the computers and networks he worked on, Teixeira would have had access to highly sensitive networks. But if he wanted access to those documents, he could only do so if he had that need-to-know clearance. And that's something they're investigating here. And one thing to think about here, just looking at it in context, one of the issues that came out of 9-11 more than 20 years ago was that there wasn't enough information sharing. That the reason why 9-11 was able to happen is that intel wasn't being shared with people low enough down the totem pole. So one of the corrections for 9-11 was to make information accessible to more people. The question being asked now is, is information accessible to too many people? And is the vetting process for that security clearance that this Teixeira was able to pass at age 19, is it effective? Uh, Are they asking the right questions? And that's one of the other things they'll be going into here. Moshe, I think you make a really good point just about vetting and who has access to all this information. The Washington Post reports that there is a video that Teixeira recorded of himself where he yells a series of anti-Semitic and racist slurs before opening fire on a target at a shooting range. And he actually shared that video 
on the same group chat that he allegedly shared the classified documents. Yeah, apparently there are, are questions about, you know, his belief system, et cetera, though Interestingly, so far, when people ask about what his motivation was here, it does not appear to be like an Edward Snowden situation where he was uh, critical or has an agenda in terms of leaking this for political purposes. The motivation here appears to have just been very basic, which is showing off to his gaming buddies on the Discord channel. And apparently, at times, he would get upset at them for not taking his uh, documents seriously. He's like, guys, I you know, discovered some stuff. You should really be concerned about what your government's doing. Uh, and people are like, uh, and then he started posting photos and like, look, look what else I have access to. And he never actually, it does not appear that he wanted that stuff to get out there. It was just for the gaming group, but it was someone else on the Discord channel that actually put it out on other social media. And that's when the whole thing, you know, uh, blew up basically and got out there to Russian intel, to foreign governments, to media, etc. So we're going to hear more as this trial goes on over time and learn more about his motivation. Uh, right now, it appears he will be charged under the Espionage Act, and he's facing at least 15 years in prison. But some officials say that some of these leaks have been so damaging that uh, you know they're going to look at ways to keep him in prison potentially longer. So let's talk about the materials themselves. We addressed it uh, on the podcast last week. There's details about the war in Ukraine that go against what the U.S. is saying publicly. Uh, it shows how deeply we've infiltrated the Russian military. It shows how the U.S. spies on South Korea, on Israel, on Egypt. So far, uh, as far as international reaction, a number of countries concerned about the leaks out there. Uh, one European official said the disclosures did make his government question, quote, the ability of the U.S. government to keep secrets secret and whether information shared with Washington could end up online. But at the same time, you had multiple foreign officials talking to The Washington Post who are like, listen, at the end of the day, countries spy on each other. This is nothing new. That's the nature of things. Sort of the old line from the movie Casablanca. You know, I'm outraged to see gambling happening in this club. Like at the end of the day, like what what shocker? The U.S. spies on us. We spy on the U.S. That's sort of par for the course here. And that ultimately, it doesn't look like this will change things because the Europeans and many of the U.S. allies are so dependent on the CIA and the network of satellites and intel the U.S. has abroad that ultimately they'll keep sharing with us, we'll keep sharing with them. But clearly they're kind of like, can you just make sure our stuff doesn't end up online? <laughs> so I've been listening to a bunch of interviews with intel officials or former intel officials, and they say that what's really different about this leak compared to other well-known leaks of classified information is that the intel here is current and can have real-time implications about a war that's currently happening, which is the war in Ukraine, as you mentioned. So, for example, the documents give a very blunt assessment on when Ukraine might run out of long-range missiles and other ammunition. That is information that is very useful to the Russians, especially as Ukraine is preparing for this spring offensive. There's also intel on Russian operations. Many documents say that the source is what's called signals intelligence, which is intelligence that's derived from electronic signals and systems used by foreign targets like communication systems, radars, and weapon systems. So it's possible that Russia will see some of what's been leaked and decide to change how it communicates, which essentially would cut off the U.S. ability to gather some information. Some of the documents show the extent of U.S. eavesdropping on allies like South Korea, Israel, and Ukraine, as you mentioned. So there's this conversation between two senior South Korean national security officials about a U.S. request to send ammunition to Ukraine. 
And they speak candidly about their concern about whether this would violate South Korea's policy where they don't supply lethal aid to countries who are at war. There's also this document that shows that the U.S. has been spying on Ukrainian President Zelensky. I guess none of it is too surprising. Some of it's just embarrassing. Totally. But again, it can have real-time implications. Yeah, I mean, the South Korean thing you mentioned, I mean, it literally is, is the U.S. tapping the South Korean president. And in some cases, essentially what it is, Jill, is blackmail. The U.S. going around the world trying to gather stuff on other countries to basically pressure them to uh, give military aid to the Ukrainians. So again, none of it necessarily surprising. In fact, in some cases, if you're the U.S. and you're giving more than $100 billion to a country like Ukraine, uh, you should be spying on Ukraine to find out what they're up to, (laughs) (laughs) especially if it turns out they're not being totally honest. So, you know, there's certain accountability here. But again, to have it out there in the open, it's kind of like, ooh. And Jill, that's just what we know so far. We're still trying to get a sense of how much is out there. There is the belief that it's more than 100 documents that are out there. But again, it was you know put on this Discord channel. Somebody put it out on other social media. So they're still trying to get a sense of everything that's out there. And by the way, so are our adversaries and so are our allies. Okay, switching gears in what will likely be the biggest media trial in decades starting today. Fox News executives and some of its biggest on-air stars will be on trial in a courtroom in Delaware. This all has to do with their role in spreading doubt about the 2020 election results. So jurors are going to be hearing this $1.6 billion lawsuit filed against Fox by Dominion Voting Systems. It is a landmark defamation case that will determine whether the news network can be held financially liable for publishing the false claim that Dominion voting machines rigged the 2020 election, potentially taking the stand here. Fox Corp chairman Rupert Murdoch, on-air personalities like Maria Bartiroma, Tucker Carlson, and Sean Hannity. Now, Dominion Voting Systems is this company that manufactures voting equipment. It was the subject of numerous conspiracy theories all baseless, that somehow its machines had rigged the 2020 election results by flipping millions of Donald Trump votes to Joe Biden votes. But jurors need to answer a very specific question here. Did Fox defame the voting machine company by airing these bogus stories, especially with these new internal emails that show that many at the network privately doubted the false claims, but aired them anyway. In a pretrial ruling, a Delaware Superior Court judge agreed with Dominion that the claims Fox News hosts and guests promoted about the voting machine company are false. The challenge, though, for Dominion is to try and convince the jury that Fox News acted with actual malice. That is the legal standard here. So did Fox knowingly transmit false info and have a reckless disregard for the truth when it aired those conspiracy theories. Fox News is arguing that the network was just reporting on extraordinary claims of election fraud by the then president, and that this falls under the First Amendment freedom of the press. Yeah, there's a very high bar in this country. And by the way, it's not true in Canada, it's not true in the UK, and many other democracies. The media in the US, because of the way the First Amendment has uh, been interpreted until now, gives journalists a lot of freedom. But in this case, court papers released over the last two months include text messages, emails showing those Fox executives, Jill, producers, personalities, talking to each other about how they disbelieved what Trump's claim was of the fraudulent election, mocking Rudy Giuliani, mocking Trump's attorneys, saying, can you believe this stuff that we're airing? And so Dominion believes this is the standard here, that this shows uh, actual malice. On top of that, there are internal memos from executives at Fox. This has all come out here uh, in the pretrial process 
saying that they're concerned about losing the audience. They're concerned about losing viewers over actually telling them the truth about the election and that that would send them to other more conservative channels like Newsmax or One America News Network, which were giving more time to the theories. So in this case, these memos are saying, stop fact-checking everybody. Let's just air this stuff because we're desperate to keep our viewers. So again, Dominion believes that works in their favor here. Part of it started when Fox actually declared Biden the winner of Arizona. Remember, the media outlets make calls on states. And Fox was actually the first to call uh, Arizona for Biden, which really changed the nature of that week where we didn't know who the next president was going to be. And the conservative audience was so upset about that, they started to leave Fox News in droves, which then reinforced to Fox that they had to keep up this narrative that uh, the election was stolen here. Jill, as this trial gets started, uh, everyone should uh, bear in mind here that despite being about Fox News, this trial, Federal, will not be televised. It's expected to last about five to six weeks, so we will get reporting day in and day out. And a judge has already determined that the allegations that Dominion was controlled by Venezuela, that it was purposely changing ballots, is false. So what this trial is about is just to prove whether Fox passed that actual malice standard, that there was this reckless disregard for the truth, And Dominion believes they have at least two dozen examples of that based on these internal memos and then what ended up on television. And as you said, we may hear from all the high-profile talent here, the Carlsons, the Lou Dobbses, the Sean Hannity's, and the CEO. They tried to get Rupert Murdoch, 92-year-old CEO, not to testify. The judge said, no, no, he will testify. His son, who basically operates the company, Lachlan Murdoch, also likely to testify here. So it'll be a fascinating case. And what's interesting, Jill, here is because of the First Amendment nature of this, there's a lot of reporters out there, some could say even liberal reporters, who sort of secretly might be hoping for Fox to win this case because the implications here for the First Amendment could be that if Dominion wins its case and wins a whole bunch of money, that sort of chips away at defamation, sort of chips away at how much power the media has to report things they're hearing without being worried about defamation. And so there are interesting, I mean, beyond the implications of Dominion and Fox, First Amendment implications here. And most just in terms of this actual case, where did Dominion get that $1.6 billion value from? That's one of the things that has come up, because even if Fox loses the defamation case, will they end up having to pay out this $1.6 billion? So one of the things Fox people have brought up is Dominion was bought a couple of years ago for $80 million. It's a $100 million company. So Dominion is saying, you did $1.6 billion in damage to us. And so the way they came up with this is that they claim they suffered $921 million in damage to its business, another $88 million in lost profits, and they're also seeking $600 million in lost future profits. At the end of the day, the voting machine market is not that large of a market here. There's a few companies. Dominion is one of them. So they might win this case but not get the $1.6 billion because, again, they're a $100 million company. So how can they get awarded this $1.6 billion figure? And ultimately, if you're a state out there, are you not going with Dominion systems for your next voting machine? Maybe potentially, and this is their argument that in certain red states, they're sort of, uh, you know, there's an X on them now. But that'll be one of the things to watch here should Fox lose the case. All right, we have a lot more to get to in this podcast. But first, let's thank our sponsor this week, Athletic Greens. I've been using their AG1 supplement since the fall. The Athletic Greens AG1 powder is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It's easy quick, lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten more than 75 important ingredients, tons of vitamins and minerals, pre and probiotics to support your digestion and gut health. 
And what's great is they have a special deal right now for all you Mo News listeners. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. You can head over to athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. While there, you can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just a month. Again, it is athleticgreens.com slash monews for this special deal. And it's really an opportunity to really start to take ownership over your health. All right, as we head into warmer weather across much of the U.S. in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep is by checking out Bull and Branch Bedding and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at Mo News. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bull and Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you. And it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code MONEWS for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. Time now for the speed read. Finally, some word from Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, currently imprisoned in Russia. According to the Wall Street Journal, the reporter Gershkovich wrote his first letter to his family since being arrested in Russia on an allegation of espionage. In that two-page letter written in Russian to his family in Philadelphia, he said he remained optimistic, looked forward to seeing them, and joked about prison food. He wrote, quote, I want to say that I'm not losing hope. I read, I exercise, and I'm trying to write. Maybe finally I'm going to write something good. He also joked, Mom, you unfortunately, for better or worse, prepared me well for jail food. In the morning for breakfast, they give us hot creamed wheat, oatmeal cereal, or wheat gruel. And I'm remembering my childhood. He confirmed that he received a care package arranged by a friend and containing things like toiletries, slippers, clothes, and pens. He said, quote, I now have more clothes and stuff than mom and dad at home, I think. And he ended the letter with, I love you very, very much and hug you tightly. I received your words of support from the lawyers yesterday. Thank you very much. Until we meet soon, write me. Moshe, I was struck by how much humor he was able to include in the note. Yeah, it appears so far, you know, despite being in a Russian prison on espionage charges and potentially, you know, facing years there, unless there's some sort of prisoner trade, that he appears to be in good spirits, at least so far. We should note, Joe, the letter was written in Russian, which is the language he spoke growing up at home. His parents are both Russian immigrants. In fact, they were part of the Jewish-Russian emigration in the 80s and 90s that left the country. And that is one theory as to why he may have been targeted here um, out there, is that, you know, he happened to be of Jewish-Russian origin back in Russia reporting on things. And there was always a concern that, you know, there might be some sort of revenge factor there. There's a really powerful interview the Wall Street Journal did on camera, actually, with his parents and his sister. If uh, people want to take a look at that and they have a Wall Street Journal subscription on their site, uh, the mom saying she felt great joy upon receiving the letter because she's finally hearing firsthand how he's doing. She said, these are my son's words, not someone else telling me, and his spirit is shining. 
The letter is dated April 5th. It's the first direct contact Gershkovich has made with his family since his arrest about two weeks ago. For background, Gershkovich is 31 years old. He was detained by Russian security services back on March 29th, accused of espionage in the interest of a foreign state. He is actually the first overseas journalist to be charged with espionage by Russia since the Cold War. That's significant here. It was always a feeling that journalists were untouchable, uh, but obviously that has changed here. The Wall Street Journal, the U.S. government, all vehemently deny the charge, saying Gershkovich had nothing to do with any of that stuff. This is a trumped-up charge by Russia in order to be able to get maybe a, another prisoner exchange. The State Department has officially designated him wrongfully detained. That's an important status. The designation now launches a U.S. effort to exert pressure on Russia to free him. And so far, he has not been able to meet with embassy officials. He has met with attorneys, but not U.S. embassy officials. And that's something the government has been asking for. Okay, now to another international story that we're watching, this time in Sudan from the Washington Post. Gunfire and explosions rock Sudan's capital and other cities for a second day on Sunday as the conflict between the military and a heavily armed paramilitary force continues. The civilian death toll in Africa's third largest country has now climbed to at least 74 with dozens of more deaths among the military, according to doctors. Three Sudanese staffers with the World Food Program were killed on Saturday. That organization is now temporarily halting operations in the country where 15 million people, more than a third of the population, don't have enough to eat. So what is this about? Fighting broke out Saturday morning in Sudan after weeks of rising tensions between the rapid support forces, which are known as RSF, a major paramilitary group led by the vice president, and the military, which is headed by the president. The rivals who seized power in a coup back in 2021 fell out over a power-sharing agreement and a timeline to integrate the RSF into Sudan's national forces that was supposed to usher in a return to civilian rule. Yeah, just some context here. Sudan first became independent in the 1950s and has had more successful coups than any other African country. So it's not that surprising here, but there were high hopes in recent years that the most recent round of generals that had seized it in the last coup were going to return the country to civilian-led democracy. Those negotiations between the president and the vice president fell apart. And so now you have this civil war. And unfortunately for many Sudanese who had hopes, it comes after they were able to topple their last dictator, Omar al-Bashir, a few years ago. These generals took charge. Uh, they're now fighting it out. So it's too early to tell what the effect of the current fighting will have in Sudan's future. Uh, who wins this? First, we need a ceasefire, then a political process to calm things down between the two generals that are now fighting things out in the country of about 45 million people, where you mentioned, Jill, 15 million people don't have enough to eat. But there's a lot of interest here globally in what happens in Sudan. I posted a, a map on the Instagram feed. It is in a very strategic location just south of Egypt, uh, has coastline on the Red Sea, close to the Middle East. The Russians have been negotiating a military, a naval base there on the water in Sudan. The Chinese are highly interested in Sudan. The Americans are highly interested in Sudan. And so there are a number of countries here very interested in seeing this resolved in their favor. Okay, back here at home from CNN, Montana became the first U.S. state on Friday to pass legislation 
banning TikTok on all personal devices. The bill prohibits TikTok from operating within state lines and bars app stores from offering TikTok for downloads. The legislation marks the furthest step yet by a state government to restrict TikTok over perceived security concerns. And it comes as some federal lawmakers have called for a national ban of TikTok. Lawmakers in Montana's House voted 54 to 43 to get final approval to the bill. Now, should the governor sign it, it would take effect in January. Barring the expected legal challenges, the legislation specifically names TikTok as a target of the bill and outlines potential penalties of $10,000 per violation per day. So the penalties would apply to any app store found to have violated the law. They would apply to TikTok itself, but individual users of TikTok would not be penalized for accessing the platform. It is not clear yet if the governor is going to sign this bill into law. But most tons of questions, though, on how this would even work if it were actually to take effect. Yeah, that's the big question here is, is how do they enforce this? Uh, and as you mentioned, Joe, there's no penalty for residents. If I live in Montana, I don't get penalized for downloading TikTok. Apple and Google get penalized for offering in, the, in their stores. And then, of course, TikTok gets penalized for it. But can you drive across the border to Wyoming and download it? Yes. Can you uh, download a, a virtual private network, a VPN, to download it? Yes. And so there are a lot of questions, including from Montanans, who may even support a TikTok ban. I'm like, how exactly will the Montana government, Montana law enforcement, somehow enforce this? And then you have the legal challenges that you mentioned. TikTok is already hinting at a legal action to oppose the bill, saying we're going to continue to fight for TikTok users and creators in Montana whose livelihoods and First Amendment rights are threatened by this government overreach. And it's not just TikTok. The ACLU, civil liberties groups say this bill is censorship, and they will likely file a lawsuit here should the governor sign it. Uh, and it does come, Jill, is there are legitimate questions about security questions about TikTok, but can a ban work in this day and age? Do the laws exist? And is there an enforcement mechanism given that, again, there's so many examples we could cite. Jill, you and I live in New York State. We have TikTok on our phones. We fly to Montana. We use TikTok. Uh, so how exactly will this sort of thing get enforced? There's a lot of examples you can come up with. And this spurs the larger discussion of, you know, as they talk about a federal ban on TikTok, how would it work? Maybe it's easier federally because it would encompass the whole country. You know, a good example of this is India. The entire country has banned TikTok. And by the way, Indian officials say no one misses TikTok here in India. It's a move they made a couple of years ago because of their concerns about China. But on a state by state basis, it makes things really complicated. OK, now to the legal battle over the abortion pill, Mephapristone. This is from Politico. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito temporarily froze a lower court's ruling that would have restricted access to a common abortion pill. The decision preserves the status quo until Wednesday, but leaves the drug's future availability up in the air. Alito gave those interim orders on Friday afternoon, but don't read too much into them. They don't signal how Alito or the full court is likely to rule on the substance of the case. All it does is just give the justices a little bit more time to review the emergency appeals from the Biden administration and also the drug company that manufactures the medication. Yeah, the reason why Alito actually ruled on this is he happens to be the Supreme Court justice that oversees the Fifth Circuit. So the way the courts of appeals work in the U.S. is geographically. There's the Fifth Circuit, the Seventh Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, and they're drawn around various states. And each of the Supreme Court justices 
overseas cases in those uh, appellate regions. And Alito, who just so happens wrote the uh, Supreme Court ruling last year on Roe v. Wade, happens to oversee the Fifth Circuit. So to your point, Jill, we have to wait and see here how this plays out, whether they determine they have to have a full court ruling on this, how they determine they want to adjudicate uh, what happened in the lower court. As we've told you, this all started at the lowest level with a federal district judge in Texas, Matthew Kaczmarek, issuing an order to suspend the approval of Mifepristone nationwide in all 50 states, regardless of their abortion rules, saying that the FDA overreached 23 years ago when it first approved this pill. And so there was appeal, and it went up to the appellate court in New Orleans, the Fifth Circuit, and three judges from there put his ruling on hold partially, but still said that there need to be limits in how mifepristone is doled out, which is then is what led to the last appeal to the Supreme Court. So there's going to be a bunch of filings over the next 48 hours. We'll keep everyone up to date on all of them. From the AP, first, a reminder that taxes are due tomorrow. We should tell everyone that Jill is the daughter of an accountant. So this is important information. (laughs) That's right, Mosh. So this has been a particularly stressful few weeks for him as the deadline has ticked down. Um, The reason this came up is because you asked me if I had filed my taxes uh, before we started this podcast. And I said, no, my dad's an accountant. So he usually does ours last. Actually, he files extensions usually for our family, gets his clients out of the way first and then comes to us. Yeah, sort of reminds me of the fact that my, my father was a cabinet maker. And so the furniture we had in our home was the furniture that like a customer didn't end up paying for. So it's sort of like, you know, you come, <laughs> <laughs> which, which we had beautiful furniture. My dad was an incredible uh, but cabinet like maker. But it's right? like, it's kind of like, wait, why do we have this cabinet? Oh, that client didn't end up like wanting it or didn't end up paying for it. So it sort of reminds me of your tax situation. Well, Moshe, it turns out almost a quarter of Americans wait to the last minute to file their taxes. I'm actually surprised it's just one quarter of Americans. I would have thought it would have been more. Right, right. Um, I, fe- many- I, I feel like we're more of a procrastination nation, but it it appears that it's either one quarter or some people are lying about when they file their taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's more likely. Um, a lot of people often pay to use software from private companies like Intuit and H&R Block. But the AP reports that there could be a new free option in future years. The IRS has been tasked with looking into how to create a government-operated electric free-file tax return system for everyone. But not too much of a surprise here that's not sitting well with the big tax prep companies. The idea has been batted around and hotly debated for quite a while. But Congress has now directed the IRS to report in on how a system like this might actually work. And this order came as part of the $80 billion infusion of money for the tax agency over the next 10 years. So it's giving the IRS nine months and $15 million to report in on how it might implement such a program and how much it would cost. Again, $15 million not to build the program, just to report on it. Can you look into this idea of a simpler system? Jill, I always hear from people who don't live in the U.S. who are shocked at our system here. Because in many cases, this is pretty obvious. In many countries, they just tell you how much you owe. Hey, Jill Wagner, you owe this much in your taxes this year. Here in America, the IRS is like, guess how much you owe. And we're like, this much? And they're like, <laughs> wrong, go to jail. <laughs> Why don't you just tell me the name of the movie you want to see? <laughs> exactly. Like, 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 people are just like, IRS, can you just tell me how much I owe? Like, what is this whole thing? I got to go get H&R Block. I got to go get into it. I got to get TurboTax. I think I owe this much. And IRS is like, no, 
you forgot about that receipt from the restaurant last year. And so ultimately here, it appears we're in the process of getting to the point where the IRS might have a system here. And that's what's interesting here. So this is not going to be ready for this year. Definitely not going to be ready for next year. Maybe in the next decade, we know how the government works. And so this is being celebrated by taxpayer advocates who say that this would reflect good governance, uh, serve the taxpayer as well. There are critics, though, there are always critics who voice skepticism that the IRS taking on the dual roles of both tax collector and tax preparer could create an imbalance. Uh, And of course, you have the lobbying, active lobbying, not surprising, by companies like Intuit and H&R Block, who are like, this is a terrible idea. Let's send a bunch of lobbyists to Capitol Hill to try to get Congress to prevent the IRS from creating such a system, knowing how slow the government is, because this could be a while. But again, there is hope that maybe we'll turn the corner at some point here, and we'll see how the IRS still spends this $15 million to look into a better system. Speaking of taxes and money from Bloomberg in three cities, New York, San Francisco, and Honolulu, you need a salary of over $300,000 to bring home $100,000 after taxes and adjustments for the cost of living. So this is according to an analysis by Smart Asset. The firm adjusted $100,000 for the local cost of living in 76 of the largest U.S. cities and then used its paycheck calculator to account for federal, state, and local taxes for a single taxpayer. Residents of the country's priciest cities who are dealing with growing housing costs and other mounting expenses need a net income of over $180,000 for their purchasing power to break the $100,000 mark. High earners are taxed upwards of 40% in those cities. In New York, San Francisco, and Honolulu, you need to make more than $300,000 for it to feel like the purchasing power of a six-figure income. Meanwhile, in Houston, an employee only needs to gross about $125,000 to achieve the same purchasing power as someone in New York for $312,000 a year. So a six-figure paycheck is much easier to achieve in Texas since the cost of living in Texas is much lower than the national average and there's no state income tax. So in cities like El Paso, Corpus Christi, Lubbock, salaries can be as low as 120,000 and still feel like a true 100,000 chill. Just a few more cities where it's the opposite, where you gotta make a lot to feel like 100,000. We mentioned uh, the ones that you got to make more than 300 grand in. Then there's Oakland, you got to make about 250 grand to feel like 100 grand in Oakland. LA, 245 grand. DC, 245 grand. Uh, Boston, Seattle, also above 200 grand to feel like you make 100 grand. Hashtag, why do we live in New York? We're a bunch of chumps, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> no, I kid. It's a great city. It's a great city. All right, Jill, I know you missed this segment the most while you were away last week. On this day in history, on this April 17th, we're going to begin in 1961, 62 years ago today. The U.S. attempt to overthrow Fidel Castro in Cuba failed. It's known as the Bay of Pigs invasion. It was a failed attack launched by the CIA during the Kennedy administration to push Cuban leader Fidel Castro from power. The CIA trained up about 1,400 Cubans who had fled their homes. They invaded Cuba, they effectively surrendered in less than 24 hours of fighting, vastly outnumbered. This was actually a mission that was prepped under Eisenhower, the previous president. Kennedy had just taken over. He was briefed on it. The CIA said, this is a great idea. Kennedy's like, okay, go for it. Failed in less than 24 hours. And of course, to this day, the regime started by Fidel Castro, taken over by his brother, and now a subsequent leader still in charge. 
All right, well, fast forward to 1970. On this day in history, Apollo 13, the command module, carrying the three astronauts, entered Earth's atmosphere and splashed down, ending one of the most tense chapters in space history. Four days earlier, an oxygen tank had exploded, threatening the lives of the astronauts. And the rest, you can see what happened in that Ron Howard, Tom Hanks movie, Jill. Still one of my favorite movies. Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, Ed Harris, Gary Sinise, Bill Paxton, just such a great film. Even though you know how it ends, you're just still on the edge of your seat. Riveting, riveting. So Apollo 13, 53 years ago, the film about Apollo 13 turns 28 years old this year. All right, a quick TV birthday on this day. Happy 34th birthday to CNBC on this day in 1989. I bet not all of you know this acronym. The Consumer News and Business Channel, CNBC, launched. I don't think I even knew that. And I'm in the biz. Jill, there's a lot of cable channels that uh, had these acronyms. Like, for example, ESPN is the Entertainment and Sports Programming Network. TLC started as the Learning Channel. Now I think it's just ghost houses. I don't think you're learning anything. Meanwhile, I was thinking you were referring to T-Boz, Left Eye, and Chili. The other TLC. Oh, the other TLC from the 90s. Good call. Yes. (laughs) We're all about breaking down the acronyms for you on today's podcast. And we'll end here, Jill, with this song launched 21 years ago today. That is Nelly's Hot in Here, which uh, was released this week in 2002, everybody. I'm having flashbacks to um, my college bar. You couldn't go anywhere that year, Jill, without hearing that every 10th song at any bar or club. But Mosh, we got a wrap. Um, a big thank you to everybody for listening to the Mo News podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the Mo News account, at Mosh, at M-O-S-H-E-H. And Jill, we have some exciting news. We have a voicemail that people can now leave their questions for us uh, on. Are you ready for the number, everybody? We'll begin promoting this. 1-800-711-MOSH. Call it, leave a voicemail, and you may get your question on air. We're going to have to figure out how we'll start incorporating the questions, but I love it. I love the idea. It's a listener mailbag. Yes, keep it appropriate. Introduce yourself with your name, your question, and no, it may appear on an upcoming Mo News podcast. We get a lot of questions on the Instagram account, trying to manage it, and we'd love to hear your voices. And obviously, this is an audio medium, and so we want to hear your questions, literally, on air. 1-800-711-MOSH. Give it a try. All right, everybody. Have a great day. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.